Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, welcome to the middle of the week, Wednesday the 9th of August. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk, one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong, according to Pod Status. You can find the show on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify by searching for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. And that's where you'll find my daily newsletter, which contains a lot more business and finance information from across Asia to go with the show. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China has reported a far worse than expected double-digit plunge in exports and imports in July. The drop pointed to falling demand overseas and in China. Exports from China slumped for the third straight month and by 14.5%. That's the steepest decline since February 2020. And imports to China dropped by 12.4% year-on-year in July. Exports from the Philippines climbed 0.8% year-on-year to a seven-month high of 6.70 billion US dollars in June. That was the second straight month of an increase in shipments amid a jump in sales to China, which is the country's largest trading partner. Meanwhile, imports to the Philippines fell the most in almost three years, dropping 15.2% year-on-year. Italy's right-wing coalition government has stunned investors with plans for a windfall tax on banks. The country's Deputy Prime Minister announced the 40% windfall tax on banks that have recently profited from rising interest rates. And the government said it would use the expected 2.2 billion US dollars to fund relief for families hit by rising interest rates. And Moody's has cut the credit ratings of 10 small and mid-sized US banks and placed several other Wall Street banks on downgrade watch. Among the smaller lenders receiving an official ratings downgrade were M&T Bank, Pinnacle Financial, BOK and Webster Financial. And major lenders, Bank of New York Mellon, US Bank Corp, State Street, Truist Financial, Cullen Frost Bankers and Northern Trust are now under review for a potential downgrade. On today's programme, I'm joined by Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempus Investments. And with a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. On Wall Street Tuesday, weak bank stocks weighed on the major indices after Moody's cut the credit rating of 10 regional lenders and put six other major banks on downgrade watch. The KBW Bank Index was down 1.4%, having lost almost 4% in early trading. The S&P 500 dipped 0.4% to end at 4,499, bringing its month-to-day loss to almost 2%. The Dow recovered from losses of 465 points at the low of the session to close down 159 points, or half a percent, at 35,314. The Nasdaq Composite retreated by 0.8% to 13,884, extending its loss in August to 3.2%. Investors retreated to the safety of Treasury bonds following a quartet of global risk-off catalysts, including Chinese trade data, Italy's surprise windfall profits tax on banks, Moody's downgrade of US banks and Country Garden's coupon payment miss. The 10-year yield flirted with the 4% level, but ultimately closed above it, falling 7 basis points to 4.03%. The US dollar index was half a percent firmer on a risk-off day, having been up 0.7% at its best levels of the day. 
the yen was the G10 underperformer after soft Japanese wage data falling 0.6% to 143.3. The renminbi fell by as much as 0.4% to 7.2263 yuan per dollar in offshore markets. That's its weakest level since mid-July following the poor Chinese trade data. And this morning it's declined further to hit 7.2379 renminbi in offshore markets. Hong Kong stocks tumbled following the release of China's trade data and after Country Garden missed two debt payments. The Hang Seng Index dropped 354 points or 1.8% to a two-week low of 19,184, led by falls in the real estate and healthcare sectors. The tech index slumped by 2.8% and on the mainland the Shanghai Composite was a third of a percent lower at 3,261. Chinese real estate developers posted sharp falls after China's former largest property developer Country Garden missed coupon payments on two international bonds on Sunday in a sign of mounting liquidity pressures. The $500 million bonds due in February 2026 and August 2030 fell to 13 cents and 11 cents on the dollar respectively after reports of $22.5 million in missed coupons. Shares of Country Garden tumbled 14.4% and its property management affiliate Country Garden Services dropped 9.7%. Long 4 fell 4.9%. And at the open this morning, we're expecting more losses for the Hang Seng. Futures pointing downwards by about 150 points, that's 0.8%. The index projected to open just above 19,000. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's join our guests. We have with us Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Good morning to you, Louis. Morning, Peter. And also with us is John Schofield, who is Managing Director at Tempest Investment. Nice to see you, John, as well. Yes, hello. Good morning, Peter. Um, China's reported a far worse than expected double-digit plunge in exports and imports in July. Exports slumped for the third straight month. They fell 14.5% year-on-year. That's the steepest decline since February 2020 at the start of the COVID pandemic. That follows a 12.4% drop in June, far worse than forecasts. China's exports to the US plunged by 20 year-on-year. That's the 12th consecutive months of declines to the US. Those to the European Union fell by 20.6%. And exports to the ASEAN countries, which is China's largest trading partner, fell by 21.4%, according to the data. And shipments to other markets, including Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Brazil and Australia, all dropped by double-digit percentages too. And on the import side, imports dropped by 12.4% year-on-year in July, worse than market estimates of a 5% drop, worsening from a 6.8% fall a month earlier. And that was the fifth straight month of lower um, purchases. Um, Louis, let's get your thoughts, first of all, just the overall picture uh, that this trade data is telling us about both domestic demand and the state of global demand as well. Yeah, Peter. So, you know, on the export side, I I don't really know exactly why the forecasts were so much more positive. Global trade is still in a rut. We know that also. We also already knew the July data from, you know, uh, Taiwan and South Korea. So I'm not so surprised on that. I think the main uh, disappointment is on the import side, where we, even if we adjust for the fact that import prices, like all trade prices, are falling quite a bit at the moment, year on year, but even correcting for that, we still are left with very weak import levels in China, and that is reflecting a still quite weak domestic demand in China. 
John, let's get your thoughts mm. as well, and then we'll dig into the numbers a bit uh, shortly. Mm. Um, yes, uh, I mean, the import figures um, must presumably reflect, uh, you know, slowing, slowing, uh, uh, rapidly slowing construction activity and the like in, in, <coughs> in China because of the, you know, the property, uh, property debt crisis and, and so on. So... Um, in a sense, I'm not 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 surprised to see to see that. Um, the other thing, interesting, um, we've seen exports to America, the U.S. falling <coughs> quite quite steadily. But a, a new one is is the decline to in exports to to Europe, to Europe as far as far as I'm concerned. Um, I suspect this is all part of the trend for. Um, uh, what's it called? This is the de de-risking. So-called de-risking, de yes. friendshoring and all the rest of it. Um, is that what I mean, we're seeing here, do you think, John? Do you see we're well, it seeing must, in this one of several, one of several factors. I, 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 wouldn't, I couldn't say which is the, the dominant one, but I think, I think that's po possibly the most interesting one. Where we see, for example, um, you know, investment into Mexico on, on, the, on the border of the U.S., obviously, um, is, is booming, really. Mexican economy is booming because... Uh, including Chinese companies are, are building factories there to manufacture for the for the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, Louis, at the beginning of the year, um, trade had started to recover a little bit, but it looks <coughs> like all that improvement now has been unwound, and we're back to where we started from, aren't we? At the beginning of the year, before um, sort of China um, sort of reopened, it's a bit disappointing. This, isn't it? Yeah. So I guess there are two things, right? So first, if like. If we want to look at what is happening to China's exports, we have to dig into what's happening on the demand side, right, globally. And we've been disappointed. Uh, like a few months ago, everybody was still expecting the semiconductor cycle to turn around mm. around mid-year. Mid That's not really happening. And more generally, there is disappointment on that global trade front, so like global demand. But then if you go to the China's import side, that is reflecting yeah, the disappointments in China. Mm. Is, is this exclusive to China or are we seeing other countries in Asia? I mean, South Korea's trade data, Taiwan's trade data hasn't been great either, has it, in, in recent months? So it sort of suggests that maybe it's not just a China problem, but is China doing worse than maybe other economies in the region? No, as I said at the very beginning, like South Korean and Taiwanese trade data were as weak, actually weaker than China's in, in July. Um, mm. So that is you know, in part because they are even more exposed to that semiconductor cycle. Um, I would say, as, as John said, there is a long, there is a medium term trend going on, de-risking, like mm. shifts in supply chains, but that's a, that's a medium term thing. Like the cyclical part is really mm. a disappointing global trade cycle, which is affecting China's exports. And then uh, within China, still quite subdued domestic demand, especially as concerns the import intensive parts of China's economy, which are real mm -hmm. estate and, in, uh, pr you know, uh, corporate investment like capital goods, machinery and stuff like that. So this presumably is going to test China's ability to hit its growth target, isn't it? Because we're, if we've got falling exports, that leads in turn to uh, weaker production and then the slumping imports, that's mm -hmm highlighting lower domestic demand this is all going to subtract isn't it from overall growth in in gdp yes certainly must do um in fact uh it's drawn to my attention that um nominal gdp in uh, in u.s dollar terms in china is is uh, is shrinking um and when we see when we see almost every sector of the economy 
um, in in decline, whether that's cyclical or or medium term. You wonder how how how, how you get and how you get to five percent growth. I, I, it baffles me. So uh, maybe Louis has some some insight in that. Well, you know, we we talked before over here as well, Peter, on the Chinese growth data. There are there are issues on the on the GDP side, but you know, we some of them we 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 won't be able to resolve at the moment. I think they will broadly meet their five percent growth target, but that's was that is still a bit of a disappointment because everybody expected them to vastly outperform this year. It was a it was meant to be a target that would be easily mm-hmm. achieved and now they, they may end up struggling it. And so that reflects the fact that the the, the, the recovery has lost momentum and so that's why they are mm-hmm. trying to you know uh, to, to, to to reinvigorate that recovery with a little bit mm-hmm. of policy support. Presumably, the, the de-risking that's uh, that's been going on is being reflected in these numbers, isn't it? The the exports to the U.S. down twenty three percent, exports down to the European Union almost twenty one percent. Is this de-risking in uh, taking uh, taking its toll? I would say, you know, the. China's exports is a relative bright light in a rel- like it is a is a relative uh, strong point still in the economy. If you look at China's global market share, it has hardly mm. budged and it is still higher than th- mm. than three years ago. So that would not be my worry. This is about mm. the domestic economy domestic and still economy. running a trade surplus as well. Um, with the U.S., it's about thirty billion uh, billion dollars in you July, know, so know, it's going up. You know, Peter, name me one large economy with which China does not run a large. Surplus. Mm. There is. I, I'm not sure of anyone. Like maybe a few uh, Middle Eastern economies. Mm. Mm. So how how do we explain then that countries like the Philippines, their 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 exports increased in uh, July, not by a lot, but nevertheless they did go up. But what, what's the Philippines doing that's different from from China? I I'm not a deep expert on the Philippines, but I do think that the Philippines had been struggling more than other economies with COVID. Uh, mm. even last year. So this is in, in part a little bit mm. an improvement on the supply side there. So what does the government do um, here? I mean, this is a difficult issue to fix, isn't it? Because it's not just in the hands of the, the Chinese government. It can't just fix by its own um, sort of global demand. So what does it do um, to try and offset this, if, if anything? Is there any policy measures that it that it could take? You know, like... John should also be welcome to chip in. I would just say, again, I wouldn't worry so much about China's exports. I would worry much more about the domestic demand side. If you look at China's exports, yes, there is, you know, foreign firms are changing their supply side arrangements, but Chinese, like the exports from more domestically oriented Chinese supply chains, if you look at all these green energy products, including EVs, they're doing quite well. I, I'm not worried about Chinese exports. So it's the imports then that we've, we've got to focus on and the domestic economy. But President Xi Jinping seems to have quite a high tolerance for, for a weakening economy at the moment, doesn't he? He seems to be much more um, focused on um, whether or not China's becoming more of an innovation-driven economy. He's, and he said it in several statements, hasn't that he sees that as much more indicative of China's strength than GDP numbers. Uh, yes, um, and come around, come around to the. Uh, I see US is just announcing its um, the basis for its uh, export uh, controls to China in in high tech uh, areas, and um, the struggle for um, you know dominance in in um, 
Well, it's not Australia. The U.S. has a, a massive lead in, the, in these leading-edge technologies, as we know. And um, China's very keen to get its hands on them. <laughs> mm. And um, so, it's, uh, so that's, where the, that's where the kind of um, geopolitical um, struggle, if you like, um, is, is centred. But um, I still think, you know, more mundane things like how, how they're going to get out of this property... Uh, property and debt uh, mm. crisis and, and get consumer confidence. We know China, you know, personal savings in China are very, very high levels. Um, people just don't want to go out and spend. They're very worried about, you know, um, how they're going to take care of themselves. Uh, we've got high unemployment and so on. Um, how they're going to take care of themselves and, uh, you know, health health care and, and, and so on. So, um, yeah, again, do it, you know, the sort of Basic workings of the domestic economy uh, need to be need to be looked at. So, if if Louis, if, <clears> you know, if we follow your advice here, focus on the import side. That's the worrying side here. That the import numbers do suggest that the domestic picture is weakening quite rapidly, isn't it? In the in the last uh, sort of month or so. So, what can we expect? Because it doesn't like look like we're going to get this sort of big bazooka of stimulus that the Chinese government just doesn't seem to want to uh, want to do that and then you combine that with the property sector the news we've had on Country Garden that seems to be getting worse as well what what can they do? Yeah so you know so so we don't expect we're not going to get a big bazooka but we kind of knew that right mm. so like mm. th- so th- that's not that's not a surprise I personally read the most recent political Politburo statement as relatively constructive, as expressing a willingness to actually move a bit on the fiscal front and especially also on the housing front. There was a an absence of that phrase that is often used about houses are for living, not mm. for... They removed that, didn't they, from and the removing statement. that together with some other language on we need to, mm. you know, we need to take into account uh, the uh, changes in demand and supply suggests that they are, you know, moving to a more mm. growth-supportive stance in the property sector. As mm. you said, it's not going to be big bazooka-like, but I do think that they mm. are moving the policy stance towards more growth mm. support. Mm. But, uh, I mean, the, mm. focusing more on, the, on these import numbers, I mean, the, the imports, they're at the lowest level now since the start of the year. So presumably Beijing will have seen this. They will notice mm. this. They can't sit back and do nothing, can they, in, in, the, in the face of this? Because, well, we're gonna, we'll talk about it in a moment. We're going to get the inflation data um, later today. Mm. We may have on top of that the, the economy slipping into deflation. Mm. Yes, um, well, the, the the import figures are really just the flip side of of the slowdown in property and uh, infrastructure development, as we, as we know. So I don't think um, that's the symptom rather than the cause. So really, you've got to you've got to look at the cause. Um, they've got to find a way of clearing, you know, the the overhang of uh, unsold or unfinished properties. Um, they've got to get um, got to get the market moving, get liquidity back into the market. Um, and it may take uh, it may take quite a while, and like they probably have to. We're talking um, years here. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, if you look at sort of Evergrande as being emblematic of the the that was the most yeah, big problem in itself, but it's um, in a sense um, you know the the tip of the iceberg, or at least the top uh, the top third of it. Um, so yes, I- incremental measures. They'll have to experiment with different incentives to to, to get people confident enough to to buy uh, buy properties and 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 uh, get the un- unfinished properties finished. Um, 
So, you know, but they can't, you know, there's, so there's huge supply out there. And not enough buyers, even if they complete them, enough. people might not want to buy them. So just sort of recycling a few sales into, into more, more new developments um, isn't going to work. Um, mm. And they've got to deal with the developers themselves, haven't they? We've had this news yeah. now that Country Garden, well, it yeah. used to be China's largest developer yeah. by sales. It's not anymore. I think it's number five or six. But nevertheless, yeah. it's missed payments yeah. on two bonds on, on Sunday. Now, that's not technically a default yet because it has about a month, I think, doesn't it, of grace mm. period before it's de- declared in default. But nevertheless, if this is happening to Country yeah. Garden, presumably no developer is, is safe. Uh, well, I couldn't. I wouldn't say no developer is safe, but um, not many. Certainly, <laughs> certainly, we know this problem is very widespread, and, and don't forget the uh, the LGF fees as well. Um, so, they really need to look at the the, the structure, the, you know, the, the structure of the domestic um, finances of, of the local governments uh, and, and things like that, and how how that, how that can be. Well, we have, we have got yeah. some information on that as well. These local government mm. financing vehicles they mm. miss payments. On a popular type of short-term debt last month, a total of 48 of these LGF fees are overdue on commercial paper. They t- typically have a maturity of less than a year. That's up from 29 um, in June. The mispayments amount to about $259 million, which is more than double um, June's value. Now, I should stress, none of these um, local government um, financing vehicles have actually defaulted on a public bond yet but nevertheless it's presumably putting a lot of scrutiny um, under their under their finances and again it, it just reduces the ability doesn't it of these local governments to be able to finance themselves and to dig the local economy out of a hole and provide support measures for the local economy yes as i understand it their the, you know main source of revenue is land sales um so and clearly there aren't going to be many new land sales coming up so uh, yeah it's a question of, of their revenues how, how they're going to finance themselves going forward mm. i mean louis i don't want to be too trying not mm. to be too gloomy here but nevertheless this is a, a horrible vicious circle that's that's developing isn't it of um declining imports uh, land sales declining local government financing vehicles struggling to raise debt um china potentially on the verge of deflation this is this is not a good picture is it no, it's not a good picture. But you know, it's you know, I think, as you said, Peter, there is at the moment, you know, a, a change has taken place, right? Like, as, like national security is con- is has a larger weight in mm-hmm. the overall setting of policy, and short-term stimulus just to beef up growth in the short term has lost its popularity. You know, I, I, I don't, I really don't want to s- like paint a positive picture on China's short-term growth outlook, but we also should not, you know, run too fast. Like, it's not as if China's economy is collapsing. It's just that mm. it's not growing as fast as it, as it yeah. used to. And, mm. it, and, and we see a, a reluctance to prop it up, you know. Like, yeah, so. so what do we, well, we're going to have inflation data out today. 
Um, it looks like, according to the median forecast of economists anyway, that uh, the consumer price index will have fallen about half a percent year on year on July. It will be about flat uh, month on month. Maybe the, the producer price index, that is already um, in deflation, isn't it? It's been falling for eight consecutive months. But um, maybe it might uh, improve a, a little bit according to um, the, the forecasts. But how, how much weight are you putting on this data, Louis? I almost would, would like to turn it around. I mean, how big of a problem is it? Food prices are falling and commodity prices are falling, right? And uh, on, the, on the PPI index, uh, on, on the PPI index, like China shares the issue of falling PPI with many other countries, like the, mm. the, the, the global commodity prices are having their impact on the PPI. On the consumer side, yes, Food prices are falling. If you look at core inflation or like, you know, prices of services, eh, pretty pretty stable. Yeah, we have a very weak economy, so there is no, we don't have that price pressure that you have in the U.S. But the fact that consumer prices are not rising rapidly, you know, that's not, that's not the end of the world. So really what, what, you're, what you're saying here is because a lot is being made about whether or not China has fallen into deflation. Even the authorities um, you know, don't like talking about it. But from what you're saying, you're saying that even if it has, it's not really a big problem. It, we shouldn't focus so much on this. But why are we so worried about deflation? I don't mean the Chinese authorities, but why are we, say, who, who look at the economy uh, worried about inflation? We worry when it leads to a negative spiral between falling prices and falling wages. Wages are not falling in China, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. John, what are your thoughts then? How, how concerned would you be if the number shows that uh, China is in deflation on the consumer price side? Or would you, are you with Louis and, and wouldn't be concerned at all? Uh, again, I think it's, it's a symptom rather than a, rather than a, major, uh, a major issue. So, so to that extent, I'd... I'd um, side with Louis. So we're going to have, you know, f- falling property prices, for example. So ultimately, that's that's deflation. Um, that, that, that's that's the risk is on pressure on the on the on the debt side. You know, but people can't people governments or entities uh, can't rely on inflation to to reduce reduce their their liabilities mm. in real terms. Um, so that's 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 the downside as mm. far as I, I can see. Um, Are we already though in this spiral that you say you know you say what will become a problem mm. is if it was in a spiral of consumers pulling mm. in the horns, reducing their spending in turn, mm. um, you know producers, manufacturers cutting mm. back as well. Um, it's not just food that's falling, is it? We're seeing across the property sector, for example, mm. prices being cut for rent, for furniture, for home appliances. Uh, are we in danger of falling into that very spiral that would make it uh, a problem? Unlike when we did have a temporary decline back in what 2020, there was some deflation, wasn't it? But it was mainly um, then it was mainly food. Pork prices were the main reason. Isn't this more broader and widespread now? Um, well, how to stimulate um, domestic demand is is, um, is 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 the is the is the biggest issue on the. Um, yeah, the manufacturing side, consumer goods and um, or, you know white goods and motor vehicles and all this sort of thing. Um, you know, this this because of the partly because of the decline in uh, in in demand domestically, the overcapacity is showing up in uh, you know exports, um, exporting at, at uh, ever lower prices, mm. um, and that's so that. 
that deflation is is um, is heading west. Um, you look at the the state of some of the um, manufacturers in Germany and Sweden and so on. Uh, in those areas, they're really s- struggling against Chinese competition. Um, the competitions are beating, um, as Louis said earlier, on the export side. Uh, for that sort of thing, China's doing pretty well, relatively, or very well, relatively. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, um, one thing I saw saw um, yesterday that, uh, or the other day, that um, China has the capacity to make 40 million um, vehicles. I'm not sure it was just EVs or, or vehicles, but um, mm-hmm. when actually domestic demand is 20, somewhere between 20 and 25 million. So that surplus, 15 million, is finding its way onto onto world markets. And we know there's a big export drive going in, in particularly in motor vehicles. Um, so that's that's a kind of interaction between between Chinese deflation, if you like, or overinvestment, uh, very high levels of, of production. But, you know, on this particular issue, mm. I would argue that this is not going to be a short-term uh, mm. thing the the, the 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 prowess of the Chinese EV sector and mm. the way in which it's going to make life really hard in Europe and, and other countries is going to be with us for a long time because mm. if you look at these lo- most successful Chinese EV companies like BYD they're actually making really good profit so it's not that mm. they're selling their products at a loss it's just that they're reaping tremendous economies of scale at the moment and that is yeah. helping them and that will continue to help them so you're not worried that we are close to this deflationary spiral that would then become a problem? Well, I, I personally am not so worried about deflation to the extent that I'm not worried that we're going to see wages fall. We, mm. we are not seeing wages fall, and that will limit the, the kind of deflation that has a bad name, which is, you know, that, that spiral. The Japanese-type inflation yeah. that we saw in the 90s. Yeah. And th- this is very different, though, from that situation, really, isn't it? This is not the same uh, at all, although it's often compared as being like Japan in the 1990s or fears that it could be. I mean, I, I would agree with John that if you if you need if you're looking for trouble in China, it is on that on the on the balance sheet side and on you know like with companies. Uh, th- facing deflation pressure they they, they are that that is that is uh, worsening their their debt in real terms they have difficulties to repay it that is more of an issue for me than uh, than than cpi falling for a few months mm. let me just get your thoughts on banks because there's been a lot of news on banks as well today moody's has cut the credit ratings of 10 small and mid-sized uh, u.s banks place several others on downgrade watch <laughs> and then in europe we had the news that the italian government is going to impose a 40 percent windfall tax on banks that have made profits out of this rising spread between in interest rates uh, the spread between what they uh, borrow at and what they lend at what do you make of this is this uh, are we gearing up for a, a sort of a big credit event here somewhere um no i don't think so on that well they're two i think quite separate issues but on the italian side you know i have a certain amount of sympathy with, with the government um and the banks in in, in the uk and so well, i mean what they've been doing is 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 outrageous really raising you know obviously they raise their lending rates to the but um hardly give any anything mm. back to savers and we've discussed this on previous but this is Podcast not the right way to do it, is it? Balance, um, uh, no, it's it's well, windfall it, taxes don't really work. Yeah, it should be um, 
well, let's assume it's a quick fix. I mean, it should be a regulatory matter, really, um, a matter for, um, you know, the, cons the consumer um, agencies as well. You know, are the are customers being treat treated fairly? And they're, they're not in a lot of cases. I mean, moving on to the U.S. thing, I think that that's quite different. We know that um, mm -hmm. we know that the the smaller banks, in particular, are, are under stress simply because they 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 for the same for the opposite reason. Really, they're forced to compete with um, treasury bills or whatever for for customer deposits. So, you know, we've seen massive growth of uh, of funds being withdrawn from banks and going into um, into money market funds. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this is quite a again it's a natural a natural market response. Sort of delayed so. reaction, isn't it, to what happened mm. back in the spring? It's sort of like um, you know th this yeah. tends to suggest that maybe the the problems with these regional banks are not over yet. There may there may be more, um, um, you know, there may be more more to come. I don't know, but at least the Fed, the Fed has shown that they will do what they need to do to make sure there aren't any uh, bankrupt. You know. Bank uh, bank failures that that uh, cause uh, depositors to lose their money. I guess you've seen in the U.S. quite a bit of uh, you know divergence between the fortunes of the the, the big banks and, mm -hmm. and everybody else, right? The big banks are reaping in record profits because they benefit from this current environment, uh, whereas the uh, yeah, it's like you have you you have the U.S. banking system is quite diverse, right? It, it's it's uh, we, we have a too big, we, really too di too big and diverse, isn't it? Well, we well, so we fragmented. Have a, yeah, it, it's very fragmented. Mm. We have a few very big ones, and then a huge number of really mm. small ones. And those mm. small ones are under pressure in the current environment. And mm. Yeah, that may not go away so easily. Is this going to be a, a drag on on markets? Do you think uh, this this pressure on banks, both uh, both in Europe and in the, and in the US? It probably will weigh on sentiment. It may not, you know, be a, a real serious macroeconomic issue if you look at the weight of these banks, but it probably will weigh on sentiment. Mm. And, and the other stock in the news, Country Garden, how big an issue is that? Missing coupon payments on two international bonds um, on Sunday. That dragged the Hang Seng down um, overnight, along with the Chinese trade data. We just it seem to be getting hit by a lot of risk-off events mm. all coming at the, to, to us at the same time at the moment, don't we? Yeah, well, the, as we discussed earlier, all these these sort of things, particularly the the Chinese developers and, and and so on, it's all been in the pipeline for some time. So mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's going to pop up here and there, a new one. Um, I mean, I, I I couldn't speak to that particular uh, case, mm -hmm. but um, certainly the stock market. Um, you know, we see the we see the stock market kind of desperate to grasp any any single piece of good news but and, you know we have a quick rally as we did in Hang Seng about a week ago um, only to be slapped back by by the, these kind of uh, these kind of incidents so it's very very um, you know it's, it's a setback for the, for, the, for, the, for the stock market generally I think Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming in. A big news day today. Lots of things to talk about. It's great to hear your um, thoughts on that. Some very interesting uh, opinions there. That was John Schofield, who's Managing Director at Tempest Investment. Louis Coyce, who's Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute over in Tokyo. Very good morning to you, John. 
Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, the Bank of Japan uh, said this week it's got a significantly long way to go, quoting directly uh, from the minutes of its last meeting. Or, in fact, it's not really its minutes. It calls it its summary um, of opinions. Now, during the last meeting on the on the 28th of July, the Bank of Japan maintained its benchmark interest at minus 0.1%, but said it was going to conduct yield curve control with greater flexibility. And this former upper end of the band, at half a percent has now become a reference point rather than a rigid um, sort of limit. The, the Bank of Japan, John, it seems determined to get this message across to the markets, doesn't it? That it's not easing monetary policy, even though the markets say, yes, you are. Yes, that's correct. I think at the last meeting, the Bank of Japan also increased its projection for inflation for the course of 2023 to 2.5%. So it is clearly... Um, you know, understanding that inflation is a concern in Japan. It's remained above 3% for quite some time now. I think the real question remains as to whether the level of inflation that prevails is at a sustainable level. Um, and that's something that is stopping the Bank of Japan from going um, down the, the route of, of tightening. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it has tweaked its yield curve control policy, as you said. Um, and I think there are concerns around uh, market functioning, um, given the, the inflation outlook and also given volatility in the yen that we've seen uh, certainly recently. And, you know, it's continued to, to depreciate in recent days, actually, and, and, and recent months and particularly during July. And um, this would also be one of the factors taken into account, I, I believe. Mm. I mean, the, the problem is it says it wants to see sustainable inflation. What, what I don't understand is what are the signals that it would use um, to decide that inflation has now reached that sustainable level as opposed to being transitory or, or temporary? What, what is it looking for uh, to decide? Well, it's, it's looking very closely at developments with nominal wages. I mm. think, um, you know, this will be a key factor which will determine the extent to which rises in domestic demand will be sustainable and therefore inflation can become sustainable over the medium to longer term. Um, As we've seen in recent months, um, nominal wages are still lagging the level of inflation. So it's a little bit concerning in this regard as to whether there's certainty on uh, the, the inflation outlook. Mm. Well, we saw the data yesterday. Average cash earnings in Japan increased by 2.3% year on year. Now, that has slowed from 2.9% um, in May, but it's still above what the market was expecting. But as you mentioned, Japan's nominal wage growth, which is obviously taking into account inflation, has fallen behind the 3.3% and consumer inflation rate. So this is, in effect, now the 15th straight month of declines uh, for people in their inflation-adjusted real wages so the bank of japan is sort of trying to get inflation up but at the same time it hasn't got wages up uh, to, to keep pace with it which is not a good situation is it for for the japanese consumer exactly you know the the, the level of inflation is continuing to affect uh, purchasing power of course and um it's also preventing uh tightening in monetary policy by the bank of japan so I think there are challenges um, in really stimulating domestic demand um, in that regard. Um, I think we should also remember that, you know, the external side of the economy is a contributing, uh, an important contributing factor to growth. 
um, and we're not seeing a pickup in that regard, despite the, the, the level of the yen at the moment. Um, and weaker external demand is also a factor um, related to that, of course. And we're seeing that in the, the spending numbers. We also had spe- uh, personal spending numbers yesterday. Household spending declined in real terms by 4.2% uh, year on year. That was worse than what the market was expecting, worse than the 4% drop uh, the previous month. So personal spending down uh, for five, uh, five uh, months so far um, this year. People spending less on things like furniture and household uh, utensils down almost 18% year on year. It also seems to be having a sort of self-fulfilling impact doesn't it yes i think that you know as inflation would persist and as nominal wages would continue to lag behind that rate of inflation then we're going to see some reaction in in household spending um which as you say has has uh, declined in, in recent months um you know that said i would make the point that domestic demand and consumption in general relatively resilient to the to the very large shocks that we've seen over the past couple of years um, i think the headline number um in terms of h- household spending you know le- needs to be looked at a little bit uh, deeper so i think particular items will be uh, reduced w- within that whereas other other types of uh, factors that are not directly related to uh you know significant inflationary effects may not uh, have the same impact are Japanese consumers, are their spending patterns changing in the same way that we're seeing maybe in the US and Europe in that they're not buying things, they're not buying manufactured goods like they were during the pandemic when they couldn't go out, so they were all doing things on online platforms, stocking up their homes with new furniture and gadgets. Now they're buying services and experiences. They want to travel, go on holiday somewhere, go to the cinema, go out to restaurants. Is Are you seeing a pickup in that sort of thing in Japan as well? Well, I think that there's certainly more activity um, in recent months. And, and this is, I would say, related to uh, the influx of tourists since the period since May. And this is having a positive impact on the service sector in Japan, on employment. And that, of course, will have spillovers to um, spend by by Japanese consumers as a result of that. So all of these things are sort of uh, interrelated. Mm. I think it's difficult to come up with a general overview of um, you know, there's less expenditure on manufactured goods and these types of issues. It would require deeper analysis, but I certainly would say that, you know, whilst more can be done to drive uh, sustainable domestic demand, it has remained quite resilient despite the numbers that we're seeing at the moment. Mm. And what about the uh, the overseas environment? We saw in the Chinese trade data yesterday, overseas demand looks particularly weak. I mean, it's not just China uh, that's been suffering with its trade. We've seen it in the South Korean numbers, the Taiwanese uh, trade data as well. What sort of impact is that having on Japan? Well, of course, there will be knock-on effects from that, not only in Japan, to, to all of the trading partners associated with these economies. I think that the external environment remains challenging for, for many economies. And, you know, there's a close eye on what's happening in the U.S., of course, at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and, and other parts of uh, various advanced economies, because these uh, places will be destinations for many of the exports from, from, from the economies in Asia. So I think um, this is closely related to what we're seeing um, as regards the outlook for the external environment. 
I mean, I can't work out whether the bad Chinese trade data was specific to China or whether it's sort of, you know, a regional problem. Because if you look at the Chinese trade data, there were double-digit declines in exports to the EU, to the US, also to Asian countries, to Brazil, to Australia. Everything seemed to get hit. But I'm not sure whether it's any worse than what we're seeing in the rest of Asia. Yes, well, I think uh, in the case of China, there are, of course, additional disruptions to trade related to restrictions and, uh, you know, fragmentation in that regard. So I think um, there are probably more unique um, trade patterns in this in the respect in respect of Japan relative to other parts of uh, Asia. But of course, there will be knock on effects regardless of whether economies are directly linked to restrictions and sanctions and these types of issues. Mm. So this is the de-risking that you're talking about that uh, the US and the EU is now following. But if China is being hit by that, and that's being reflected in the data, it also suggests that this is going to be an ongoing problem that the the, the trade exports from China are not going to pick up in the coming months. Well, it really underscores the need for well diversified global supply chains. And you know, this is the real mechanism through which one can address these types of frictions that would be emanating from one particular nation, for example, and to basically smoothen the disruption of that effect uh, to other parts of uh, Asia and, and other economies that might be trading partners with, with these types, with these economies. Mm. One, one other thing I want to ask you about uh, for, for the impact on Japan, we've seen now a sustained rise in long-term treasury yields, although they did pull back um, a, a bit today because there was a lot of sort of uh, de-risking sentiment going on in the markets. But last week, certainly, the 10-year bond yield in the US was quite firmly above 4%. And we haven't seen that on a sustained basis since the global uh, financial crisis. As, as bond yields rise in the US, particularly at the long end, what impact does that have on Japan and on global investment flows and Japanese investment flows? Well, of course, we had the the downgrade in the U.S., and this has led to, you know, some initial negative implications for stock markets. In in terms of what it means for Japan, I think that it's difficult to really disentangle because what happened in the U.S. coincided week in the Bank of Japan uh, policy. Mm. Uh, So both of these factors may have contributed to an uptick in in Japanese bond yields. Um, and, and this will have implications, of course, for, for the level of uh, the exchange rate and also the extent to which uh, the yield curve control policy will be tested further by speculators. And I think the concern, uh, certainly in the near term, really on whether um, we will see further effects on the exchange rate. Uh, given the inflation outlook and, and given what we're seeing in global markets. Mm. And the Japanese yen is looking very weak. And I've heard people say that, you know, if, if Japanese bond yields rise, then suddenly people might start to reconsider repatriating money back to Japan. But I'm wondering if that's really going to happen, because there's still a wide differential, isn't there, between US and, and Japanese rates? That's right. I mean, you know, for, for a long time now, um, the level of the yen has been driven what what by what's happening abroad, particularly mm. in relation to the spread between U.S. and uh, Japanese interest rates. And this is something that still prevails at the moment. We're just seeing different uh, drivers of, of this uh, spread in, in recent days. And I think that, you know, until we would see, um, you know, some reduction in, in that uh, yield differential, we will 
remain um, in a weak position as regards the yen, although there will be some volatility around that, depending on different market moves, different risk on, risk off uh, scenarios, which, which is what we're seeing at the moment in terms of volatility. The level at the moment is a little bit concerning at 143. Um, so I think that this is down to really uh, speculation and, and market activity, which is testing the yield curve control policy. John, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming onto the programme this morning. Thank you, Peter. That's John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute over in Tokyo. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with the show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safebro Group. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk 